Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 19. The last time we saw that to whom much is given, much is required, and it was a call to being responsible for what God has given us, especially in the form of the knowledge of his word. If God didn't give Jerusalem a pass of what they should have known, then certainly the church, he's not going to give them a pass for what they should have known. And I use that term uh, generically, church, ecclesia, and the Greek mean, meaning those called out, the assembly. We are the church, but also all of God's people throughout the world who are called by his name are the church. So uh, just know that. I said last week a little bit, spoke a little bit critically of the church at large. I didn't mean you. Of course, you're great. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean now. Uh, so I just wanted to make that clear. So this message is titled, The Answer to Life's Questions. Remember before you were saved and you had questions about life, and then you became a Christian and started reading the Bible, and you, you know, I remember with me, I couldn't stop reading it. <laughs> I just couldn't get enough. A lot of my questions that I had about life were answered. Why are we here? What happens when I die? What is heaven like? And what does God want from me? Today we're going to see more questions of Jesus by these powerful leaders, but their lack of wanting to hear the truth. And as a byproduct of this, some of life's questions get answered about government, about taxes, about the afterlife, about angels. So let's go in. So Luke, Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. What parable? Last Sunday, it's referring to the parable of the vineyard owner. It was very critical about the vine dressers, who, to whom the religious leaders were a picture of. It was, but, but here, they wanted to lay hands on him. They, they don't believe him. Their hearts are hard. But there's a refusal to take enforcement action based on popular opinion. They feared the people. My question is, if they were really shepherds, why didn't they just do it? Because if you're truly a shepherd, then you are concerned for the people. And if they really believed that he was a false teacher, they should have done it, but they didn't. A good leader doesn't do things based on public opinion polls. No less a man of God. A good leader acts on his convictions. 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. In Matthew's Gospel, it says that in this particular section, the Pharisees, another sect of the religious leaders, and the Herodians, who were pretty much puppet kings at Rome's disposal, were at odds each other, at, at, normally at odds with each other, but here they're the ones who keep questioning Jesus. The interesting thing is how they come together for, with a common enemy. Even Pilate and Herod, as we go further in Luke, who had ma major disagreements with each other, mended fences, during Jesus' trial. They went to the depths of depravity to trap him so they could hold on to power over the people. Why? Because Jesus was freeing people of ecclesiastical bondage, and these people, uh, these religious leaders, wanted to keep those people in that bondage. So there was a power struggle going on. If you're on fire for the Lord, you'll find that strange bedfellows come together against you because you become the common enemy. The Bible says, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, you're carrying my message. They're going to persecute you. The world is going to hate you, but understand the world hated me first. Verse 21. 
And they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Two things are at work here. Number one, you had three basic taxes. You had the land or the produce tax. You had the customs tax, which was taken at ports or gate. As you read the Gospels, you'll see when Jesus called Matthew, Matthew had his own little booth. Matthew was probably a customs tax collector. Uh, and you also, the third one was the poll or the tribute tax, which was a tax on everybody, from the uh, teenagers all the way up to the elderly. They all had to pay this poll tax. Most likely, people think that this discussion was referring to the poll tax because it affected everyone. But it could have been a combination of a few. In addition to that, those three taxes, you had usury that was charged by tax collectors. Whatever they could get, a, squeeze a little bit more out of you, they could keep those profits, right? Now, the, the um, statistics show, or if you look in the history, it says that all the taxes taken together equaled over about one-third of each person's income. Congratulations, we've surpassed that in New Jersey. <laughs> and in verse 21 also, you see that they're using flattery. They're not, they don't really mean what they're saying. They're, they're using excess. They're, uh, they're trying to trap him into this. If you look in Proverbs, and also if you look in the dictionary under flattery, it shows that it's, it's excess, it has a negative connotations, and a lot of it has to do with lying to get somebody to do what they want to do. Jesus was aware of their scheming against him. He didn't succumb to that flattery. Now, have you ever been sucked in before by flattery? I remember a little over a year ago, I filled in one Sunday, I did a service, and somebody later on had approached me and talked to me, and they were starting to say, Wow, Joe, you really know the Bible. Well, I'm thinking, sure, yeah, I know the Bible. Wow, you're really discerning with the word. I'm thinking, yeah, boy, this person's really right on about me. <laughs> you know? And they just, I was like an ox led to the slaughter. I mean, they just were going and going, and I was sucking it up. And uh, then they, they segued right into, since you're so discerning, you know, my spouse, you know, there's something wrong with this guy, and you've really got to help me get on him. It's like I got sucked in to do a dirty job, and I'm thinking, now, how do I get out of this one, right? So it's flattery is an interesting thing because they, you know, it, it's a way to, to lie and to exaggerate, to suck you in. Uh, pastor Lloyd, who was my uh, pastor for years, said to me, he goes, when flattery comes in, he goes, you've got to deflect it. If people compliment you, you've got to give it to the Lord. So you've got to kind of be immune to it. But anyway, this was a trick question here, they said to Jesus. If Jesus answered, yeah, pay taxes, then they tell the people, look, how could he be the Messiah? He wants us to to still be subjugated by Rome. If Jesus said, don't pay taxes, well, the Bible tells us right here they were looking for him to say something so they could go to the Romans and say, look, he's a seditionist. Take him away. So he was put in a really bad position here. Verse 23, it says, But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. We've seen this before. A denarius equals a day's wage. And it had Caesar's inscription, just like our coinage has different inscriptions of, of different uh, figures on it. At the time, Tiberius Caesar was ruling, so it may have been his inscription. Verse 25. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Well, here's a question for people of faith. Should we pay taxes? Should we obey a government that funds ungodly practices? 
there's a lot of major points that I'm going to try to take from this because, you know, I know as a new Christian I had a lot of those questions and people still ask those questions. So I'm going to kind of go a little bit deeper here and maybe I could title it Everything You Wanted to Know About the Bible and Government But Were Afraid to Ask. So the first thing is we have an obligation to God and we also have an obligation to the government because God ordained the government. We're going to read that in Romans 12. We see it in Genesis 9 when the, uh, Noah and his family got off the ark. We see it in Genesis 49, specifically verse 10. Uh, and we see it in Romans 13, which has continuity through the Old and the New Testament. Now, I'm going to read Genesis 9, 5 through 7. Again, the context is the ark lands, Noah and his family come off the ark, and God is speaking to him. And this is just a, a small portion of it. Verse 5, he says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. So he gives them a few instructions. Uh, he, this, is, this seems to be the first inception of capital punishment. Uh, Genesis 49.10 speaks about that also in the form of the sceptership of Israel. They were always allowed to have a government system over their people. And I believe the Latin is a juice, glagi. I believe that was one of the terms that they specifically used for that. And then let me go to Romans 13.3-4, uh, and I'll kind of try to make sense of it here. Romans 13. 3 through 4, going into the New Testament. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do it is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So God requires now this, this formation of government where now men have authority over other men. It's like the formation of government coming through also through the New Testament. God requires a human government to keep the peace and to take the life of an evildoer if necessary. And we saw that when the scepter was removed from Israel and they didn't have the right to do that, remember Jesus, they had to bring Jesus to the Romans because the, you know, the, the, when the prefects were put in instead of the Herods, they took away their right to rule their own people to the extent of you know, taking their lives. Uh, the first thing, and again, going back to Romans 13, let me hit the first two verses now, and there's a reason I'm doing this. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So we see that our first responsibility, rendered to Caesar, our first responsibility is to be good citizens. And we see that through the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah was writing to the exiles in Babylon, pagan Babylon, he said, seek the peace of the city. In 1 Peter 2 uh, and also chapter 3, Peter tells his, you know, the followers of Christ to be good citizens in pagan Rome, Right? And Paul in Ephesians 6, when speaking to the slaves at the time, says to obey their masters, not to start a rebellion. Didn't, con didn't condone slavery, but he didn't want people to believe that th these new Christians were insurrectionists. They were rebellious people, right? So, 
I'll just give you a little funny story. Um, I was on duty one day, and there was a complaint that came in. It was on Sand Hill Road by Route 1, pretty busy intersection. And uh, the, this church was out soliciting. You know, a bunch of people from the church were trying to get money every time the light turned red. And, you know, people were complaining. So they sent the police out. I go out there, and I talk to one of the ministers. And, you know, I'm not making a lot of headway with him. <laughs> I said, do you have a permit? He said, no. Uh, permits are good because if, and we've actually had people come through, try to sell things, and end up burglarizing people's homes. That's why we need a permit, so that when that stuff starts to happen, we know who to look for, right? So you go to the township office, you give them their information, they give you a permit, you can solicit now. So he's, you know, he's not, I'm not really making much headway with him about the whole permit thing, and then I quote Romans 13, and he looks stunned to hear that from me, you know? <laughs> But I was good. I didn't tell him I was going to bear the sword, you know. <laughs> but he looked at me and he said, ah, you got me. And we shook hands and it was great. The word of God is powerful, isn't it? Nothing else worked. So, uh, so the right answer at the time with Jesus is be good citizens. He, wanted us, he wants us to be good citizens as opposed to the prevailing thought of, hey, if we love God, that means we want to overthrow the government. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. Two, and part of being a good citizen is paying taxes for what government provides. Now, listen, I don't like to pay taxes any more than you do. And in New Jersey, there's a tax for everything. But, you know, uh, it's part of our responsibility. Uh, it provides police, first, first aid, fire, transportation, infrastructure, school systems, and the list goes on. Uh, but Jesus now had to present this very deftly so that he wouldn't be looked at as a sellout. And the third thing, what about bad laws? And what about when government uh, uses your tax money to fund ungodly practices? I believe, especially in our country, that's where voting and educating about the candidates comes in. To me, if people complain about the, our representative government and they don't like the people in office, the first thing I usually ask them is, did you vote? And if they say no, then I say, then I don't want to hear it. Don't complain to me. Because we have the right to vote. A lot of countries don't. So I think that we should vote, we should educate ourselves about what the candidates support. Unfortunately, some candidates are connected to uh, pretty bad uh, organizations. Some of them take a lot of money from the, from the pornography industry. And these are the things that we have to research as people of faith. Those are the people we can't accept. Pornography is a big thing now. Uh, it's in this country, other countries, import, export, it's all over the place. You can't go anywhere without seeing some form of pornography. Uh, in, in law enforcement now, I know this, our detectives go to school to learn about human trafficking, which I don't even want to go into it. It's, so, it's such an abhorrent crime. Uh, people are actually being sold into slavery in this country. It's bad. And, you know, I think people who, who engage in pornography, who buy it, who, de who demand it, they're helping to fund this industry, right? Because without demand, there would be no supply. It's simple economics. So know who your candidates are and know what they support. So in the context of this, Rome had ungodly practices and dictators, but Jesus still wasn't advocating overthrowing the government. Four, what about governments of other countries that have dictators? And I'm just, again, I'm trying to go through all the different things because I know that people have questions about this kind of stuff. Well, it does seem from the scripture that God would prefer maybe if somewhat, you know, look, if, if humans are running things, it's going to be corruption because man is sinful. So God would prefer some type of government than total anarchy. When I was young, I used to watch the Mad Max movie, remember? You know, the, there was a wasteland and everybody had guns and they were shooting each other up. 
And that's what happens with anarchy. With no government, there's just the strong survive. You, if you have more bullets, you win. You know what I'm saying? He who has the most guns wins. But, um, and look what happens in the wake of any disaster. When uh, the government is disbanded because of a, some type of natural disaster, what happens? People loot, people kill, and that's what happens, anarchy. So the first thing is bad government, corrupt government is certainly better than total anarchy. And two, don't think that God won't hold wicked governments accountable. He did it with Babylon. He did it with Rome. And he did it with many others. These kingdoms eventually fell, right? Context again. God had a timetable for the dissolution of Rome. Uh, the Romans thought, you know, it's funny you, com you can compare God's word with the word of pagans. God said, my people will celebrate the Passover forever. Uh, his people have been celebrating the Passover long before Rome was even in existence, and they still celebrate the Passover. The Romans, the pagans, with all their pagan gods, said the fires of Vesture will burn forever. Does anybody know anywhere on the earth where there's a fire of Vesture? It's gone, right? Because God's word will stand, uh, corrupt governments and evil governments and pagan governments will fall. So God wanted these people to look past the temporal and, and receive the Messiah, receive that heart revival. Listen to John the Baptist, repent and receive the Messiah as he comes to you, right? And this also big time ties into last Sunday's teaching also. And then the question is, well, what about the wars? What about World War II? What about Korea? What about Iraq? This, this is something that really is not affected here in the sense that we're, now we're talking about governments having issues with other governments. So it's, I don't think it's really pertinent here. And even Jesus said, he, he conceded in a sinful world that there would be war. Jesus told us that little, that little um, and we, we went through it in Luke, about how if a king goes against another king and he has 10,000 troops and the other king has 20,000, he makes a decision. Can I take this guy with 20,000 troops? If not, maybe I should set forth uh, terms of peace. So it, it, he speaks about it and he concedes to warfare in our time because we're sinful. Right? Okay, the exception to all this is, if you're taking notes, Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. And Acts chapter 5, verse 29. The exception to obeying government is when man's law contradicts God's law. Where man's law says to do this, and it's totally against what you would do as a believer. That's where you have the right not to obey that law. Uh, this is a situation in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John go to the temple. They see a lame man. He's begging for alms. And they say to him, Peter says, look at me. And the guy looks at him. He goes, silver and gold, I have none of these. The guy probably was wondering, well, then why are you making me look at you? You know, I need money. I'm, I'm, I'm lame. He says, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And uh, the lame man receives strength in his legs, and he's able to get up and he walks, right? And a great miracle is done. They're speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, what happens is, you know, a lot of people get saved. They come to the, the Messiah, and uh, Peter and John are brought before the authorities. At the time, it was the Sanhedrin, which was, I would say, it was commensurate to our superior court. Uh, Sanhedrin had a lot of functions, and they commanded them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And they said that, no, <laughs> We, we can't but uh, preach about the things we've seen and heard. They totally defied government and the authority because it was wrong of them to hold that inside. It was a direct contradiction to God's law. Now, how does that affect us? 
what if a new law came out and said that, and with all the, 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 the hubbub about religion and religious wars and all the religion, you always see it's in the news now. You know, it's Christmas time, time Ramadan. Uh, you, you see all the different swirls in, in the news about religion and people say, well, religion's the cause of, uh, you know, all the suffering in the world. And religion largely has. Faith in God, true faith, you know, has not. But unfortunately, a lot of religions have. So, and it's been propo- proposed, don't think it can't happen in this country, to make it a crime illegal to share your faith. You're out somewhere and you start talking to somebody and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, Jesus died for our sins. That can become a crime. You can go to jail. Now, it's not yet, but, you know, it's been proposed. Now, if that was the case of the day, and it, it is in a lot of countries, uh, you would still have to do that. You would have to break the law. My chief hears this. I'm going to be in big trouble. <laughs> no, but truth, it's not, it's not yet, but a, a law could come by that totally contradicts God's law, and that's the time where, in God's eyes, you're allowed to break that law. So that's the little caveat to all this. Now, some people look at this and say, Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God what is God, and they believe that Jesus is advocating the separation of church and state. That's a, an anachronistic fallacy, that you can't read something that Tom, Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1801 and read all the way back 2,000 years ago. That just doesn't make sense. It defies logic. But in, in the concept, I also strongly disagree. God originally pled for a theocracy for his people. God always wanted to shepherd his people, but they rejected him. They said, well, you know, the other countries, they have a king, and that's kind of cool. Could we have a king? And... <laughs> God, God was rejected by his own people. So he's like, you know what? You, you can have a king, but he's going he's gonna to tax you. He's going to take your men servants and your maid servants. He's going to take your wares. And, but if that's what, you know, God, God gives us to our own devices, people. And I'm sure we've all seen that in our own uh, lives. We, we want something so bad, and we keep pushing God and pushing God. And you know what? We don't really care what he has to say. We really want that. And sometimes God lifts his hands and says, take it. Go ahead, take it. And you take it, and you're like, no lightning bolts must be good. God must have blessed it. Not necessarily, you know. He's like, with it, he's like, you can have it. Sometimes that could be your own demise. You want it bad enough, sometimes God will give it to you. But uh, so he gave them the king, and it, it was to their, their demise. It caused a lot of problems, obviously. We also see, okay, the theocracy that he wanted, governed by God. We also see a theocracy again in the millennial kingdom. Again, you see that harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the millennial kingdom, the Lord rules. You know, he reigns. He's the president of the world, right? Uh, But there's nothing right now. There's none in the interim. And I believe it's because of sin and rebellion. Again, God would love to directly shepherd his people. That's his heart's desire. Daniel 2, uh, verse 34 and 35, which I read last Sunday, uh, it shows the, the dream about the different kingdoms. You know, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the figure, and each part of his body represents the... Uh, the, um, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, and then the Ten Toes, which people speculate is the Ten Federation of the New United Europe. Uh, and then the rock comes, it's cut, made without human hands, and it bowls everything over and grinds it to powder, which is a picture of, you know, God eventually will show the futility of human government. Eventually, he'll grind it to powder, and the Lord will rule. He'll fill the earth. And we'll get to see the difference between how we were run by men and that, how the Lord rules. And it's going to be a night and day difference. So how does all this pertain to what Jesus means? Number one, we have a responsibility to God-ordained government, render to Caesar. But we have a greater responsibility to God. 
And the irony is the people who wanted to overthrow Rome for the sake of God, God, I love you. So because I love you, we're going to overthrow these pagans. We're going to kill all these people. That's what they wanted to do. And the irony was that they weren't rendering, rendering to God what he deserved. And, and we see this a lot too. You know, everything in the Bible can transfer into our own personal lives. It's, they were like, okay, God, we know that this is what you really want. We know that you want us to get together and kill all the Romans and, and burn the villages down. And, and we're going to, you know, us and the Messiah, we're going to take over. And God's like, no, that's not what I want. I need a heart revival from you people. You're really messed up. That's why I sent John the Baptist. That's why I sent my son. No, 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 God, you don't understand. That's not what you want. We're going to tell you what you want. You want us to overthrow Rome. And that was the, the mindset of the people. They weren't rendering to God what he deserved. They were doing what they wanted. And we can do that too. People will come up with these bizarre ideas of how they're helping God. Uh, you know, or sometimes we do that too. Well, this is what God wants. No, I can't clean that closet in my house. Don't, don't look in that closet. This is what God wants. I'm going to do this for God. And they have these, uh, like a little, almost like a, a ritual of the things that they want to do that they think is going to please God. But it says right in his word what he wants. Jesus said, if you love me, in John 14 and John 15, you'll follow my words. If you don't love me, you won't follow my words. It's that simple. So which camp do you want to fall in? The camp that says, I really love Jesus, or the camp that doesn't love Jesus? You can only go one place or the other. You've got to get off the fence. And if you love Jesus, you've got to follow his word. So the first thing to do is definitely look in his word, and if these people would have done that, they would have received John, and they would have received Jesus. Okay, uh, the second thing is, loving God doesn't include overthrowing a godless government, and also, Scripture says it's better to be a good uh, citizen, rendered to Caesar. There was a, a sister in Christ that, I was on duty, and I had to visit her for something, and uh, I went to her place of appointment. I'd never been there before. And I said, is so-and-so here? And they said, oh, yeah. And uh, they were like, I said something like, I said, well, it's not anything for bad, you know, because people, unfortunately, talk about getting depressed as a cop. They say, <laughs> they say dentists have the highest suicide rate, but, you know, every time we come somewhere, they, somebody wants to stab us or shoot us or run away or lie to us or throw rocks at us, but spit on us. Okay, I'm done. But people equate the police with trouble. So right away I said, no, 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 no. She's not in trouble. There's nothing wrong. And they said, we would have never thought that about Marianne anyway. Like their opinion of this, this sister in Christ was so high. She was such a good employee. She was such a good witness to other people that they would have never thought that I was there for anything negative. And I was like, wow, that's very interesting. She has a good reputation. So, uh, you know, and this is what God is looking for. God is looking for us not to have a bad reputation to the ungodly. God is looking for us to have a good reputation for the, to the ungodly and the unbelieving word, world. Give God what he really wants. One of them is to set a good example, right? And that's what he's looking for. Verse 27, going back to Luke here. It says, Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him. So they asked him a question. The Pharisees and the Herodians took a shot and failed. Now we have the Sadducees getting into the act. It almost seemed like a bizarre game show. So who can stump the Lord? You know, everybody was taking a turn at trying to stump Jesus here. But uh, these guys, the Sadducees, are mostly priests and mostly are comprised of the Sanhedrin. 
So the ruling, the superior court kind of thing that we talked about, that was these guys. They mostly filled up this, the Sanhedrin. So they were the ones that would decide a lot of cases and make the rules and things like that and govern the people. They actually had their own, uh, the temple police force. They actually had their own local police. Even though the Romans had their soldiers, these guys governed somewhat their own people. Uh, these guys were wealthy. They were powerful. They were the aristocrats. Their doctrine was they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. What's interesting th- about that is if you write down 1 Corinthians 15, it's the resurrection chapter. It's all about the resurrection, what it means, why it was done, what it means if there was no resurrection. So if you want to know really a lot about the resurrection, uh, I would certainly look up 1 Corinthians 15, meditate on that chapter. But to me, this goes back to what I said um, last week or the week before, that whole desire-based theology routine, how people make a theology based on their personal presuppositions and feelings. And this is what these Sadducees did. What do I mean? They had it so good in the temporal. They were leaders. They were rich. They were powerful. They were influential. Uh, people took good care of them. So who cares about the afterlife? Their whole idea was the temporal. That was their big thing. So the religious leaders didn't believe in the resurrection. Somebody showed me another poll taken, and they take these polls every few years, among Christian pastors, not just Christian people, but pastors. And the question was, how many believe in the resurrection? And the numbers were astoundingly low. The numbers were very low, and every few years they take this poll, the numbers drop. So what are pastors doing? Are they just earning a paycheck? I don't know. But they, a lot of them don't believe in resurrection. Paul said that if you don't believe, if there is no resurrection, your vein is, is, is futile, and you're still dead in your sins. So how can you be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? Verse 28. They, was, they said to him, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So here's where they start to, they're actually going to introduce fact through scripture, and then they're going to introduce a hypothetical, okay, to try to stump him. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, and Genesis 38 explain liverite marriage. Liverite becomes from, from levir in Latin, which means husband's brother. And what that means is liverite marriage was... Uh, something that was set forth in Scripture by God in Deuteronomy, so that if a woman's just a situation, woman's married, her husband dies, uh, the next brother, if he's not married, can marry her and continue the family name, uh, take care of the widow was a, a, a sidebar, which was a good thing from that, and also to redeem land if needed. We see this big time exemplified in the book of Ruth. Those of you who have read the book of Ruth see it's all about Leverite marriage. Uh, Verse 29. Now there were, here's where the hypothetical comes in. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, I wouldn't have been able to answer that if I didn't see this in Scripture. I'd be like, well, they got me. 
wouldn't have taken long. But it was an absurd hypothetical situation to, to try to trap Jesus. Verse 34. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What's really important, too, is in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says before all that, he says to the religious leaders, you are deceived, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. That's pretty heavy for somebody to talk to the religious establishment at the time and say, you don't even know the scripture. You don't know the power of God. Uh, I think I see that too in, in today's day and age. You see some people who are supposed to be uh, ministers, uh, pastors, and they just don't know the word. They don't know the word. They don't care to know the word. They just teach a, a happy, flowery message, get people into the church, get, you know, put, pass the money around, and that's all they care about. It's a business. We want to be in God's business. We don't want to be in the God business. There's a big difference. We want to be in God's business, but we don't want to be in the God business. So a few points about this. Number one, some people believe that you know, when Christians die, we, we earn our wings and we become angels. It's not true. Maybe that works with the airline thing and you get your little wings and your, your sky miles. But when you die, you don't become an angel. You become like or as the angels in a certain sense. No more physical death. And it doesn't appear from all of Scripture that angels marry or have children. Now, someone's going to say to me, who knows the Bible really well, in Genesis 6, it talks about the Nephilim and the the angels who fell, and there's a possible interpretation of a hybrid race of angels and humans that walk the earth. Uh, If that is true, which there's good, uh, good support for that, it was certainly done in disobedience, and it will be judged. In Jude 1.6, it says, for those who have left their former habitations to do it. So it appears that these angels way, way back in history left their former habitation where they were supposed to be. Somehow they were able to, and again, I'm not going to, this is all speculation. They were able to have this hybrid race of these powerful beings and, and humans, and uh, some, some believe that might have precipitated the flood. Okay? It's, it's a theory, but even if that is true, they were disobedient, and Jude says, if that's referring to them, that they're going to be damned for it. So it wasn't something that God wanted. It is not something that will be in heaven. The second point, and I only bring these up because I'm asked. <laughs> if there's no marriage, is there any sex in heaven? Now, this is great. You can go home and people could say, what did you talk about in church today? We talked about sex. Let me tell you clinically and as sterile as possible that intimate feelings are a stimulation of concentrated bundles of nerves in erogenous areas that also correspond to pleasure centers in the brain. That was easy. (laughs) Clinical. It's getting warm up here. (laughs) So why did God give those relations to us? And the answer, I believe, is twofold. Number one, to make a relationship between a husband and wife more special, more uh, intimate, you know, more deep, whatever. And the second part is to make the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth enjoyable. Because if it wasn't, there probably would be no population, right? So those are two good reasons. And uh, a caveat to all that is all sexual dysfunction and perversion is not part of God's original plan, obviously. The Bible speaks against some of these things. It's a result of the fall of mankind and sin. So if there's no marriage anymore, 
will there be sexual relations in heaven? Probably not. Otherwise, it would be an eternal fornication, right? So it, would, it, it, do, it defies logic. And again, I'm just kind of trying to go through logic here, and, and let's see what we can do with this. So then some response from some people is, well, if that's the case, then I don't want to go to heaven. <laughs> I've heard this stuff, and more than once. Well, I've got news for you. If it's not in heaven, you could be sure it's not in hell either, right? Which some people think, no, I'm serious. Why? Did I say something weird? But if, if that's unsettling to you, okay, then you've just fallen into the trap that the Sadducees fell into. See? If that bothers you, you've fallen into a trap. The same trap that these Sadducees fell into 2,000 years ago. Check it out. One is it's a thought that's strictly temporal, not understanding the power of God. If you're like, oh, that's a bummer, you know, how could that be? The second thing is, if God ever takes anything away from his children, takes anything away from someone he loves, he always replaces it with something far more rewarding and better for you. You know, God is not one that exasperates his children. The Bible tells us specifically, Paul says, God speaking through Paul, he says to fathers, fathers, don't exasperate your children, right? And God doesn't do that to us either. Um, and again, we talked about the, the physical to the brain to the feelings of euphoria. Hey, that's great. That feels good. Now, I'm really struggling through this, by the way. <laughs> I mean, is it possible that when we go to heaven that uh, no, we won't have any negative feelings? There'll always be a type of, not high, but feeling of well-being, a euphoria type of feeling. And again, I'm just speculating. I don't know. So something that's so limited, and I've got to tell you something else that... People have come to me, and, and you, know, you know this too, some of you may be adrenaline junkies, but people have said certain non-sexual activities can produce the same type of euphoria in the brain, and that's why people do that. So all it is, is again, it's a referral of nerves and stimulation of certain centers in the brain. Now, I don't think we'll have uh, physical brains and gray matter in heaven, but God will reproduce somehow good feelings for us. We'll always have good feelings. So uh, it's just a speculation. Okay, another example of the power of God is, what about this? You have an elderly, handicapped believer who dies, right? And you have someone like my son, who's a quirky little seven-year-old, and they both die and go to be with the Lord. Now, in the resurrection, is that poor believer, that elderly believer, always going to be walking around with a cane, forgetful, and hunched over, and my son's going to be an eternal, quirky little guy with no understanding, with the immaturity? No. And it's an example, but is it possible that when we're in the resurrection that we'll all somehow be the same age of maturity and all the uh, things that are associated with age will be washed away? It'll be an even slate. Again, think outside the box. Think about God is so powerful that he could do anything. Okay? So, I don't think age restrictions would be part of the spectrum either. Other things that won't be needed, and think about this. And I, I just was thinking, what won't be needed in heaven? Well, probably we won't need police, we won't be, need pastors, so I'll be doubly out of a job, retired and happy. <laughs> Other things that we won't need, the medical profession, think about it, the legal, legal profession, the drug industry, hospitals, the security industry, the military, funeral homes, cemeteries, transportation of any sort, educators, government, and prisons. And you can 
sure add maybe 15 to 20 things to that list, things that we won't need in the afterlife, in the resurrection. The trap that people fall into is when they start their religions and they start their belief systems is they take the temporal, like maybe the Sadducees or maybe the Pharisees, and they try to transfer that over to the spiritual, and it doesn't work. Um, Mormonism and Islam are very similar in a lot of ways. They're founders, the things that they focus on, and they both over-focus on sexuality in the spiritual realm with no, with no scriptural backing. Like the Sadducees, they both don't understand the scripture, and they make assumptions on the spiritual realm based on the temporal realm. The whole thing about the 70 virgins, it doesn't compute. What do those poor 70 virgins get out of it? To share one guy for eternity? That's ridiculous. It defies logic. It defies the power of God. Um, the whole thing with polygamy. Uh, this is just egotistical, male-dominated religions that somebody made up and people follow and think it's going to get them to heaven, and it's not. Uh, there's going to be no marriage, it appears from the scripture, so then there, there, there can't be any death, no one will die anymore, and there probably won't be births. So you, you won't have to re replace the people that have died. We'll be like brothers and sisters for eternity, and God will be our Father. Verse 37. I didn't do too bad with that, did I? Verse 37. Now, even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Moses comes after these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Many years later, Moses comes on the scene, right? Uh, these guys were dead, long gone from the earth. They were technically dead, but God says to them, he speaks of them as if they are alive, which they are. Exodus 3, verse 6, verse 15 through 16. Exodus 3, 6, and also 15 through 16 is that burning bush passage. God appears to, to Moses. You know, the bush is, is, is on fire, but it's never consumed. And he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew and Mark also records that, that he says, I am the God of. In other words, I currently represent them. I currently have a relationship with them, even though you don't see them, and even though they're not on the earth. They're not among you right now. I think about the Hall of Faithers in Hebrews 11. Let me just uh, read through that. Hebrews 11, 35 through 40. This is called the Hall of Faith. It talks about all the people throughout human history that, uh, were, that honored God, that had faith in God. And even though their situations looked quite bleak, uh, they still trusted God and followed him even unto their death. I'll just start with 35. It says, Hebrews 11:35. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They looked forward to something that they weren't completely understanding, but they trusted God. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So they didn't receive it particularly in the temporal world, right? God having provided something better for us, they, that they should be made perfect apart from us. So these people trusted God. They went to their death, sacrificing this life for the next life, and that's where they received the promise. 
So why would God say he's the God of dead people? He wouldn't. All these people, uh, you know, disregarding what the uh, Sadducees said, all these people were alive. God is the God of alive people, not dead people. So the answers to life's questions. I believe that God made us inquisitive no matter how old we get so that we could still ask these questions, so that we could be like children. So when God tells us and commands us to be like children in our demeanor, which kind of goes against our grain a lot, we can actually accomplish it. In our church, we have historians, we have educators, we have people in the medical profession, the legal profession, we have some ministers here. And we also have people look around from all different backgrounds. But what do we all have in common? What ties us all together? Something very simple. The fact that we had some questions about life, we came to the foot of the cross, and we have many of these questions answered for us. We found that God loves us. He loves us so much that he separated himself and sent his son down to the earth to die for our sins, a horrible death, so that we could live eternal life with him. We're promised eternal life. Now, you talk about a good retirement plan. That's a great retirement plan. You don't have to worry about your 401Ks or your pensions or the state rating the pensions or any of that stuff because God promises us something that can never be taken away. Thieves can't steal and moth and rust can't destroy. The only ones who can't grasp this is the ones who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He also says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. These people, these Sadducees, these brilliant, educated, erudite people, were, they were, they were, it just couldn't get it. It couldn't sink in because they were perishing, because they, they relied on their own intelligence and their own foolish wisdom of the world to get them through, and it just didn't compute. The sad story was last Sunday... Uh, after it was a long day at church uh, last Sunday, and when I finally got done, we went to a restaurant, and there was a man in the corner sitting by himself. He had a cane, very old, um, didn't look like he was in good health. And my wife started talking to him, and then after we ordered, I actually got up and I started talking to him, and um, he he scoffed at the things of God. I said, "Yeah, but listen," <laughs> I said, "You're going to get there before I am. One of these days." We're going to stand before our maker. I mean, you know, it's just being honest. And he scoffed at it. He goes, how preposterous to think that someone died 2,000 years ago for my sins. I'm like, but what if I'm right and you're wrong? I mean, the guy just, he just looked in such bad health. And he scoffed and he scoffed. And I actually wasn't mad. <laughs> I didn't feel bad for myself. I felt bad for him. And we prayed for him. But um, this is what you're dealing with in the world. We're all going to die a physical death unless the rapture comes. Statistics show that 10 out of 10 people die. It's a fact. <laughs> My wife was really, really sick one night, and she said, Joe, I feel like I'm going to die. Do you think I'm going to die tonight? Do you think I'm going to die, she said. I said, yes, but not tonight. <laughs> I mean, maybe it not have been the best answer, but it certainly was truthful, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it, we're going to die. It's just a question of when is it going to be. We don't know. The Lord knows. If you know the Lord, praise God, you have treasures in earth and vessels, and you're wealthier than the, the large majority of the world. Jesus said that very few people find that small path that leads to heaven. It's a difficult path for some people, because they make it difficult, not because God does. And the wide path, a lot of people take that path, that's the path that leads to destruction. 
So if you know the Lord, you have treasure in, in your earthen vessel, in your body. You know, you, God is, he, he put a part of himself in you. You're wealthier than most of the world. If you don't know the Lord, are you going to ponder ridiculous questions? And people do that. They just, oh, you're a pastor? Well, what about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin? And what about this? And what about that? And it's like, what? that's just a weird question. But <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but you know, it, it's just like, uh, you know, just you answer a question. And this is what the Bible says. Well, what about this? And they just keep rapid firing you because they're really not interested in the truth. They just want to ask ridiculous questions like the religious leaders. So I'm going to ask you today, are you going to, if you don't know the Lord, are you going to ponder those questions? Are you going to open up your heart to receive those questions? And will you receive Jesus and take hold of eternal life? That's the question. The choice is yours. Let's pray. What about this and what about that? And